Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Keith Walsh Podcast. It's essential like your breakfast. It will get you up and going, learn some things you didn't know Yeah, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast It's the Keith Walsh Podcast Give you energy like buck fast And if your head's in a pickle or you're looking for a giggle It's the Keith Walsh Podcast Yeah, Yes, it is the Keith Walsh Podcast It is Wednesday, the 28th of October um, It's about 5 o'clock here as we, as we record this intro and this is a Keep Watch podcast special. I wanted to talk about um, the doll voting to seal the mother and baby homes records for 30 years. Um, I am interested in the subject, but I can't claim to know much about it. I'm, I'm a layman when it comes to politics. I have a passing interest, but... My understanding of legislation and the passing of bills and doll votes uh, with regard to such things is limited. But uh, I did want to better understand what exactly is going on here. There seems to be a lot of information coming out about what happened and why it happened. And I can't, I'm trying hard to get to the truth, uh, to the nub of the issue. Uh, As I mentioned in my chat with Fiona, I, uh, I've been talking to my daughter about it and she's been hearing this and hearing that from friends and um, so I'm trying to get the correct information and I wanted to get to do a, a podcast and have a chat with somebody who understands what's happening and understands what it means and um, understands what the implications are and understands the law as well. So I decided to ask um, my friend Fiona McLaughlin Healy. She is... Uh, let me just give you a little bit of information about Fiona. She is a busy mom of three. She's a sports mentor. She's an equality advocate. And uh, she is a County Kildare Leader Partnership Board member and long-standing Virgin Media Elaine Shaw panel. She was elected to Kildare County Council in 2014. And he, she has shone a light on cronyism and corruption in local politics. She's known for speaking out on governance issues, in particular those arising during her term as board member at the Kildare Wicklow Education and Training Board, a board that is currently the subject of an investigation by the Guard uh, Economic Crime Bureau or Fraud Squad. Uh, Fiona has a wealth of experience across private, public and voluntary sectors. Originally trained as a nurse, she studied law and politics at NUIG, winning the President's Award for highest overall marks in her final degree year. Uh, So that's kind of, she knows law, she knows her business, and she knows politics. Uh, She's a councillor herself. Um, Let me just talk a little bit about the Commission of Investigation. Critics 
of the com uh, Commission of Investigation. This is according to the independent.ie. I'm just reading it verbatim from independent.ie. Critics of the Commission of Investigation, uh, mother and baby homes and certain related matters records say that it will result in the archive of the Commission into mother and baby homes being sealed for 30 years. This is the... Um, the Dáil voting to seal mother and baby homes records for 30 years. Uh, Children's Minister Roderick O'Gorman denies this and says he is acting to avoid the records being sealed. Taoiseach Michal Martin has also insisted that the intention is to preserve invaluable information, not to put it beyond reach. So uh, there's a lot of discussion at the moment. Is, is what the government did the right thing to do to protect the information? Did they need to do it to protect the information? What's true? What's not true? I don't know. I'm not an expert and I want to find out what the truth is. And I wanted to give um, people who have an interest in it and would like to know more about it uh, a sort of, a, I don't know, an easy to understand guide into this. Um, because I feel like we're all, it's hard, you know, I mean, my, my own personal experience, I like I, there's something stinks here. You know, this does not smell good. There seems to be, and maybe it's because of lack of transparency, there seems to be some sort of cover-up here. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying there is. I'm saying there seems to be. Something is wrong. And if, there, if it is a cover-up, what are they trying to cover up? And these are the things that I've been thinking, and I'm angry. And at the same time, I don't know exactly what I'm angry about, so if somebody engaged me in an argument about it, I'm not sure I could argue with them properly. I feel that if somebody knew legislation and bills and politics better than I did, they would argue me under the table. Um... So I wanted to find out more. So I asked Fiona to join me at short notice, which she did. And I'm very grateful for her. And she was very, very particular about making sure that she had her facts straight. And I know she did a lot of preparation for this chat. So I'm very grateful to you, Fiona, for that. Um, but that's enough waffle for me. Uh, this is episode number 19 of the Keith Walsh podcast. And it is Fiona McLaughlin Healy trying to explain to me what the recent vote by the doll means uh, for the information that was gathered by the commission of set up to investigate mother and baby homes. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, Fiona makes a lot more sense than I do. Enjoy. T-wise with Elaine earlier on in the week, so I have the computer. It is connected. It's plugged in. We have the earphones. We checked that Zoom was on the phone. And then I swear to God... The, the grass is getting cut on the greens outside. And just as you were um, you were connecting there, I hear the um, the ice cream van is oh, after yeah. jingling down, down the road. But hopefully these will minimize it. How are I, you? I can't hear. It's, it sounds absolutely perfect. Uh, that's, you right. know, that's real life, Fiona. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. That is real life. <laughs> uh, I'm recording already, so we could just lash straight into it. I'll do um, I'll do a little intro. Before the okay. chat, just to explain uh, who you are and all that kind of stuff. Um, okay. But uh, how's how's life? How's business? What's what's it been like? Uh, you're in lockdown now. Are you guys meeting? Uh, what's the what's the story? How 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 are things? How do you get to do your job during lockdown? Well, well, during lockdown, actually, I do a huge amount of my work from home. I have a, I have an office here at home. Um, and I do a lot of work from here anyway, so it doesn't really impact hugely on me in that way. Obviously, there's a lot less 
meeting up with people and events and that sort of stuff to to go to but really I can work away from here and it hasn't impacted on me significantly in that way in terms of the council uh, the ministers after passing new legislation um, which allows us to make decisions virtually so that had been a huge issue uh, previously in that we were meeting by zoom for some of the the, the previous lockdowns but we could not make formal official decisions uh, virtually. So that has now changed. And uh, I'm very much hopeful, Keith, that really, you know, you might recall a year ago, the council passed my motion finally, I think it was on about the, the fifth go over the last number of years to um, introduce webcasting of, of council meetings. And there was um, numerous arguments over the years about you know defamation and publication and all that sort of stuff but really if we're going to be having virtual meetings and we now have the precedence of journalists being invited to those meetings there's absolutely no justification for keeping pub the public out so I'm very hopeful that this is the wedge that we needed really to introduce the, the webcasting of council meetings because it has sat with our protocol committee for the, the last year even though the council supported it uh, over a year ago so uh, bring it on is what I say you know yeah, I do remember uh, you talking about it before and and it's interesting how Covid has uh, accelerated a lot of things for, for and, and made things you know certain things blatantly obvious and Absolutely. I know you, you were pushing for people to be able to watch uh, council proceedings online and there was no reason why it shouldn't happen um, there was just a few people in there who didn't want it to happen for, for their own reasons and lo and behold, um, almost like, you know, it just yeah. now it kind of yeah. kind of has to happen now. And uh, You know, as bad and all as the, as the crisis is, you know, there is always some positives to be found. And that's not to dismiss the awful, um, you know, sadness and distress that has been caused to families all over the country and the and the world um, with the with the pandemic. But yes, there's there's a lot that people have, have learned from it and um, a lot of good things that are coming out with a lot of people getting to work from home that, you know, had previously been asking to work from home because they felt it was very possible. So that whole area of remote working has really escalated as well. And again, we've learned a huge amount about that because it's not ideal for, for everybody either. So five days working from home a week isn't the ideal. So it's how we marry the advantages of remote working with the loss of maybe the the social networking and that side of things that's really important as well uh, it's okay when you get to my age you don't really want to see anybody <laughs> anyway <laughs> you just want... well you can probably tell i'm quite happy working from home myself yeah, yeah, we're, we're grand we're okay. <laughs> um now th th this is one thing and i don't know whether Anyway, this is the, re the reason I got you on, because I wanted to talk about, I wanted to do a podcast, a, a special podcast. This will probably go up separately to, it might just go up straight away. Um, to talk about the mother and baby homes uh, and industrial schools, and in particular, the um, repeal the seal, open the archive debate that's going on at the moment. I don't, look, I'm, I'm watching it, but I feel like I'm watching it from afar. I'm interested. I'm concerned that these records are being sealed. But if I'm going to be, and I know I've done a podcast with you before where I've said, I don't really know. I'm not political, really. 
in the in in one sense of the word i'm interested i don't want to see the wrong thing being done and i'd like to know more about this and i've been trying to read up and i've been talking to my daughter about it and we've been looking into it and and i thought look I, I saw you talking about it on your social media and i thought maybe i'll get fiona on and she can sort of explain things to me uh and i can pass on your explanation to anybody that listens to my podcast because i think knowledge is is key here and there's a lot of confusion as well about whether um yeah. i mean the the people who are saying uh that the government have made the wrong choice are now sort of being castigated or being called troublemakers by some people and uh i know uh the government are saying no we've done it for very good reasons and they're trying to prove those reasons are valid and all that kind of stuff but but maybe if you could take us back to some point to, to sort of an explainer of the whole thing would that be possible absolutely and and i might just start by saying that even though i studied law myself and my degree is in was in in law and politics I have found it quite complex in terms of trying to access and reduce down to, like you should be able to explain to your granny what, a legis what legislation is about and why it's complex and difficult. And, um, you know, there's a huge amount of concern. There's a huge amount of confusion caused. And a number of the things that are causing that confusion is, you know, the the red flags around why it was rushed through the, the door, you know, why the need for the guillotine on such important information, like the fuss that is happening now over this is necessary because I, I hope I get a chance to go through in a few minutes in the terms of reference that I haven't really heard people go through in detail, the type of thing that the commission already knew that it was looking for going into this and why there are the concerns that there are about that information possibly being locked away. There is huge amount of confusion caused by competing legislation, national legislation, um, European legislation around GDPR. There is huge amount of confusion between competing interpretations of that legislation by experts. So experts, legal experts, we should call them, reading the same legislation and taking different interpretations from them. And this is where I go to, I remember Catherine Connolly, um, Deputy Catherine Connolly, who I admire very much, um, telling me before that, you know, when she's at the Public Accounts Committee and there's very, you know, highly educated um, elite of the elite academically in the room, she looks around to see where she can, you, you know, where should she get her comfort from? And I remember her saying to me, the controller and auditor general was one of those people that she, she looks to for comfort in terms of the credibility of the information being looked at. So experts aren't infallible. And that same point, and so I think it is important to look at who's on either side of the debate, and that is very important for, for me. Um, the other thing that you need to look at is the role of the Attorney General. And again, the Attorney General is not uh, infallib infallible. We know and we have learned, again, one of the benefits of Golfgate is that, that it has highlighted the fact that these uh, legal positions are actually very entwined to the detriment, I believe, of the Separation of Powers Act with politicians, with the political arena. And it's very difficult 
for me personally, and he may be a fantastic attorney general, and this is his second time around, but I find it hard to untie the attorney general position and his advice, which has been challenged by the Data Protection Commissioner from that link with, with politics. So that's one of the things that has caused confusion. Um, the nasty side of it is the cheat sheets and the, the sort of repetition of phrases about there being an orchestrated campaign and very serious accusations made about people like Maeve O'Rourke, who is, um, you know, a, an award winning humanitarian barrister who set up um, the Clan Project, which is uh, an amalgamation of the Adoption Rights Alliance and the Justice for Magdalene's group, and has been given freely of her time and won an award in 2014 for the work that she had done um, with the, the Justice for Magdalene group. And then you have people putting on record in the Shannon, um, Barry, Barry Ward specifically, accusing them of uh, malicious campaigns or campaigns of, of misinformation and giving out about an email campaign that they had going. And that, I suppose, in one way is, is, an, is an awful thing and, and goes towards the confusion, but also sorts of sort of highlights for me. Actually, the argument is winning here because when they start to play the man and not the ball, because the arguments just aren't holding up, then there is actually a very hopeful story to come out of, to come out of this. But they are the, the types of things that are causing confusion. So if you'd like, I can go through briefly sort of the relevant legislation and how people are taking different interpretations of it and why that's causing confusion. But I think it's also important as well to remind ourselves of why the commission was set up, Keith. Yeah, so let's just, for anybody that's kind of like just jumped into this and hasn't really been paying attention, you know, what's the information? Why was it set up? And now what, and what is this information that we we may not have access to for whatever it is, 70, 75 years or whatever? I, I, I'm not exactly sure, but you'll explain all that. And that's why I have you on sure. as the expert. Well, I, I'm I'm not an as, expert now, and I, I do I do have to I do have to qualify that, you know. But you you as are much the, as, you, you are as, as <laughs> I, the average man's sort of take on, or the average person's take, um, you know, having done a little bit of research and having studied a a, a little bit of of law and understanding maybe a little bit about the interplay between the the legislation and the and the political side. So, um, the commission of investigation was set up in 2015 and that was after claims by uh, you might recall Catherine Corliss the indefatigable tenacious uh, amateur historian who started looking into and was inspired by her own memories um, of her childhood in Tume uh, around this um, um, home in Tume and she started looking into uh, records and records of deaths and records of burials and found about over 790 missing records of burials. So she knew there had been that number of deaths, but couldn't find any proof of the of the burials. And she persisted and uh, did further research and, you know, was really was getting absolutely or very little traction for a long, long time. 
Um, but she talked to locals, the locals were aware of a, of a site where they believed was a mass grave, but they thought that there were famine victims that were in this mass grave. And Catherine proceeded to find an ordinance survey and to discover that it was actually the site of a, of a septic tank. And she believed and claimed that some of the, so she put that together with the fact that there was no burial record for so many children. And she believed that uh, some of those babies had been buried in the, in the, the septic tank. And actually she was proven to have been correct in that uh, assumption a couple of years later when they did find uh, bones from as early as I think 34 weeks fetal uh, age up to two to three years of age. And that was sort of the start of it. Um, but there, so it was set up to investigate that and uh, 14 or 15 other additional homes um, and another story you might have heard of is, is um, a lady who went to Besborough in, in Cork and her child died as a result of um, lack of care, basically, there. And she went back 30 years later to see where her son, George, William George, I think was his name, was buried. And the nun brought her to... Um, a gate going into, I think it was the, the nun's own graveyard or, or close to it. And she just tapped her foot on the ground and said, this is where your child is, is buried. And uh, Bridget asked, could she put a stone there in memory of her son? And uh, the nun told her that she couldn't. So it wasn't until uh, 20 years later, after Catherine's work started to come out, that Bridget went back and defied what she'd been told not to do and put a stone there and everybody else started to follow suit. And that's how the, the Angels graveyard came about at, uh, at Bessborough. But you're talking about, again, uh, missing records for about 800 children there as well. And in terms of the term, so that's the type of thing. Um, that triggered this um, commission of, of investigation. And one of the things that, 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 that I'm just going to, if I can, if I can find it, uh, just tell you, under the terms of reference that they were set up, some of the things that, that you know, they were saying, this is what we want you to look into, is the entry and exit and pathways into and out of these um, institutions and the participation of women in the, the relevant decision-making in that regard. So what decisions women had, what autonomy they had, what agency they had in terms of being sent to, going into uh, any of these, these homes or the, the living conditions and care arrangements. They were asked to examine the mortality amongst mothers and children and to determine general causes and circumstances. So there was already a query about that. They were asked to investigate post-mortem practices of mothers and children who died, reporting, for example, on burial and transfer to educational institutions for anatomical examination. Now, I hadn't realized that that was actually part of the of the terms of, of reference until I went through it in detail over over the last uh, the last couple of weeks. They were asked to look at compliance with relevant regulatory and ethical standards at the time, 
of systemic vaccine trials um, found by the commission to have been conducted, including vaccine trials conducted using vaccines manufactured by Burroughs Welcome in the years 60 and 61 and the years 70 and 73. So this is what they knew going in setting up this commission. A pharmaceutical company like this is not speculation as some people would have you believe. This is in the terms of reference. It also asked them to look at the entry and exit pathways for children whose mothers were not resident at the time of their entry. The extent to which children's welfare and protection was considered read their placement in Ireland or abroad. I just let that land, you know, whose who's welfare, whose opinion, whose consent, what was considered when placing a child either in Ireland or abroad. So there, the, the information relating to that is, of course, of huge interest to a lot a lot of people it asks to look at the extent of mothers participation and their consent around that it looked at the practice it asks to look at the practice and the procedures for placement where there was cooperation with another person or persons in arranging this placement and it includes intermediary organizations in that so the actual organized set up of effectively what you're talking about trafficking of children um, you know through these mother and baby homes and the extent to which any group of residents may have system or systemically been treated differently on any grounds whether religion race traveler identity or disability so i just i felt it was important to read through that keith because i think if that is the concern and the concern is that originally what was recommended by the bill was that a database of 60,000 records, personal data relating to people would be sent to Tusla and that the rest of the archive, the rest of it, without that information that has been sent to Tusla would be sent to the minister. Now, after the initial Shannon discussion, there was an amendment and, and um, Mary Alice Higgins talks about this on an, on an excellent podcast with, I think it's on Tortoise Shack, um, where she talks about they sought the amendment that the entire archive, including what the bill was proposing would be sent to Tusla, would be sent to the minister. So that a whole archive, that what the minister will receive, and we'll get onto the ceiling in a minute, that what he will receive and what he will, he will have in the archive is the whole archive and not just the ar archive minus the records that will be sent to, to um, Tusla. And that was a hugely important amendment by the Shannon and has been included into the bill. So that is a win in terms of uh, how they've made, made it progress. On the ceiling, the ceiling is, is really the ceiling of the bill and, you know, whether, you know, the bill is about ceiling records or not. And people saying, you know, we're doing the exact opposite. The bill does not refer to ceiling of the records, but it, it, it the whole premise on which the bill was required, according to 
statements by the government and by Roderick O'Gorman is that if they didn't send it to Tusla, all of the records would be sealed and nobody would have access to them. And that some of the records might be redacted, that the commission believed that some of the information needed to be redacted. I can't see and I can't find access to what they are relying on in that regard. But the concern was that personal data would be sent to Tusla. People had concerns about Tusla because of their already discriminatory practices. And I don't mind repeating that in terms of how they treat adoptees. So somebody who is looking for information about themselves under a different name. So if they had a different name when they were born, they treat, treat that as a third party request which is a very different thing to being able to ask for information about yourself, you know, which GDPR really has strengthened. And then you have this whole issue about the, the, the ceiling. So let, let's, let's look at the ceiling. So the relevant legislation in terms of the ceiling, when the, the commission was set up, it was set up with reference to the 2004 Act around uh, the setting up of, of commissions. So the Commissions of Investigations Act 2004. And in that it says under section 43.2 that a commission's records will be transferred to the National Archives on the expiry of 30 years after the date of the commission's dissolution. So just, I'm gonna repeat that because I think that, because this is kind of what, what a lot of this centers on. that. The records will be transferred to the National Archives, a commission's records will be transferred to the National Archives on the expiry of 30 years after the date of the commission's dissolution. Now, different people are hearing different things in that. This is one of the, the different interpretations. I don't hear, and lots of legal experts don't hear, and people like Maeve O'Rourke are saying, there's no requirement in that to seal documents. It's just saying after 30 years, we send them to the National Archives and it's silent on what you do with what them you do in the meantime. In the, in the meantime. Yeah, and that's yeah. a really important thing. And I, I think, you know, and, and until I sort of found that, that nub in the, in the legislation, I was finally able to say, okay, I get how people are able to sort of spin this in, in two different directions. But again, I have to hold my hands up and say, I'm with the people that are saying, it does not, there's no mandate for it to be sealed based on that provision alone. And what Rodrigo Gorman is saying is that the entire premise of the act is that investigations are held in private and that that applies to the evidence and the records. And, um, you know, it's central to allowing testimony to be given freely in the future. And he's saying, you know, if you undermine that whole premise that people mightn't give their information so freely in the, in the future. Now, all of that is challengeable, very challengeable. Uh, again, Maeve O'Rourke comes back and says, uh, you do not, it, it does, the act does not require you to proceed entirely in private. And actually, if you look at the details again of the terms of reference, both the act and the terms of reference envisage and articulate that people can 
seek to give their story publicly. And people have sought to do that and have been denied the opportunity to do so. So you can't say on the one hand, oh, well, the intent of the act is to keep everything private. If there are stated provisions in the act and in the terms of reference that people can ask to tell their story publicly, they can ask to speak to the, the, commission, in, the uh, commission of Investigation publicly and that they have sought to do that and that they have been denied that. And again, me as, you know, just in terms of my own research, I haven't been able to get a rational explanation for why they have not been allowed to tell their story in public, because I think that is that is really important. But that's the issue of the seal. And, and so for those that are saying we didn't know that voting on this was a vote to to seal, it was actually a vote to um, protect information on that point. It was the language around sealing, mentions of sealing, all of that articulation came from the government and from the from the minister. They said we have like the very premise of the bill is we have to do this or all of the information, you know, or some valuable information will be lost. We have to do this to protect it. So they may now be rowing back on that and saying it wasn't a vote to seal, but the very premise of, of the bill was that they needed to do this because they believed that otherwise records would be lost or redacted because of the sealing requirement. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, it's dense, I know. I mean, it's, it's, it is. It is it, dense, but, yeah. but I'm, 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 I'm kind of getting a sense of how... Uh, some people are twisting some of what was said to suit what they did. Um, the um, so so the situation we find ourselves in now, and the what Roderick O'Gorman was responsible for, means that where we are now is these the findings of the commission are going to be. You could tell me they're going to be sealed for a period of time. Is that is that where we are at the moment? Well. I think it's I think it's more hopeful than that. You know, he's he. So what, so what happened? So so what was the so what was the news that came out uh, five, four or five days ago that we all reacted to? What was what was the government's decision? Do you know what I'm saying? So absolutely. So at that time, people's understanding and the understanding, the premise on which they were voting was that they were going to send records, personal data records to Tusla, 60,000 records, and the archive, the testimonies, all of that information, you know, that we that we spoke about under the terms of reference about, you know, how institutions were run, who was involved with them, um, all of that rich information that that would be sent to the minister separately and sealed. Okay. After the amendment, the vote effectively... Sorry. For 30 years. For 30 years, okay, yeah. And, and again, that's back to that little, you know, nugget in the, in the 2004 Act that people are saying, well, you know, this, you know, there's a requirement for, for sealing. You know, I think there's overwhelmingly an acceptance that there is not a requirement to seal. 
And even if there was, so I do believe that the people that voted on the day were accepting the minister's premise that we need to do this because otherwise um, the, the, the records will be, will be sealed. And that therefore they were accepting that premise. They were accepting and buttressing the status quo that these records must be sealed for, for, for 30 years. But we're going to salvage something from it. We're going to salvage something. And that's why we're voting on this to send some part of that to Tusla. And you can see the, the difficulties with that. Some isn't all of the information. And then the information that you say that you're voting to protect is going to an organization that has made it incredibly difficult for people to access their information. And it should not be. So it's saying it's trying to protect the information the testimony of survivors who are saying it is impossible to get our own information from this body. So the two things don't, don't match. You can't, you're sending to an organization that this, to protect the data of survivors who themselves can't get access to the information. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a nonsense. So they were definitely voting on the day to, as I said, buttress that idea that and, and the status quo that has that has existed, that um, these types of records are actually sealed for 30 years. And that's before you mentioned, we haven't mentioned GDPR that came in in, in 2018. And that's European legislation. Um, and that really strengthens people's rights about their personal data. You have a right to know not just what data is held on you, but how that's going to be handled and processed. Like the, the legal ramifications of this report are humongous. And, you know, many people suspect that's an element of it, you know, in terms of liability, um, et cetera, that that's part of the agenda of trying to say that there is a, a ceiling requirement. And I don't accept like many others that, the, that there is, but people have a right to their information, to the handling of it, to the processing of it. And they have a right to rectify inaccurate or any incomplete uh, information. And that EU legislation trumps national legislation. It absolutely trumps it, but I think Campaigners are going further than that and saying, so you just can't see, like it's just like it's just beyond the beyonds. I think there will be a revolution um, if if they try and insist and persist with the the, you know, the, these have to be sealed, you know, by the law of the, of the land under the, the European uh, legislation and um, GDPR. It's just not permissible that they can throw a blanket over the entire commission's archives and shouldn't be allowed to happen. And I don't think it will be allowed to happen. And I think what has happened in the last few days, again, one of the amazing upsides of, of the story, because just remember how re-traumatizing this is for survivors how disempowering it is to have all these other people talking about what can or can't happen with their information you know information that they might have been seeking um for for years you know you'll have seen pictures on on twitter of people posting redacted information where their own surnames because there was a change in surname their own surnames that they know are redacted from them from themselves mm. so 
it's been very, very difficult for, for survivors. I've absolutely no doubt about that. And I've had a lot of communications from people who have had different stories to tell. But there are upsides. And if nothing else, because of this botched, rushed, disrespectful attempt to guillotine such important legislation, I think it has really mobilised people around the country. And I think the response to it is for a number of reasons. It's not just people responding to what's happening about the mother and homes um, baby bill. I think it is people responding to, um, you know, the cervical uh, check scandal. I think it is people who feel impacted. And, and when I say impacted, I mean either directly or indirectly just through having a smidgen of empathy in your, in your heart. Um, you know, to have listened to stories in the past about symphysiotomies. Um, you know, we, we've heard over the, the last few days about, or yesterday, Vicky Phelan talking about being betrayed by the, the, the current minister and a promise that was made to them to, to pause uh, the setting up of that tribunal. And it's just a pattern of really poor treatment, right up to and including extreme abuse for years like I only listened the other night to um, Magella Moynihan's story the 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 Garda who was charged with breaching whatever led you know internal uh, I think she was charged with like getting pregnant or having premarital sex with the another guard who obviously in some way managed to do it without him having been involved in the in the process and I, you know, I was, we had just been dealing with and delving into all that had been happening around the mother and baby homes um, scandal and story and, and outrage. And I was sitting in the car and I was traveling somewhere and Magella's story came on and I thought, I can't listen to this. This is too much. It's too much. And then I thought, no, we have to stop turning away from these kinds of stories we have to start listening to survivors. And that's who's on the, the different sides here. So when you have the Barry Wards and the Niall Collins and, and people saying, oh, you know, there's people being fed uh, misinformation and, you know, there's a sustained and dishonest campaign, you know, of information, you know, look at who, you know, the, the Catherine Connolly thing of look around and see where are you getting your information? Who are they talking about? I mean, the people on the other side of that are survivors and people who have been advocates for them, people who are highly educated, you know, who have volunteered their time and, and effort for years uh, and researched this whole area. To have men stand up in the, in the Shannon and, and undermine them uh, you know, and tell them and accuse them of, I think it's just scurrilous and it needs to stop. They just need to stop. Everybody needs to take a breath. They need to take a step back. I believe Roderick O'Gorman, the minister, has taken a, a step back. I, I think he has accepted that, you know, they really need to do something now in terms of making sure that people shouldn't have to fight for their information. That needs to be guaranteed that they will have access to their to their information and that it shouldn't have to be a battle for them. 
and he really needs to look at the application of um, GDPR as well to that 2004 legislation. And if people think the 2004 legislation is important, I'll let them have that. Just amend it. If you feel that, you know, that needs clarification. I don't feel it needs clarification in order for that seal argument to be completely um, dismissed. But if people feel that it does and clarity is required, then then appeal that they have a they have a government majority. You know, they can they can pass. You know, they tried to guillotine this. They can pass other legislation that that's needed, you know, Um like okay so where is this coming from and like for me as a as a layman watching this and just a, a lad who has a passing interest in politics uh, you know it, to me like uh, you know on one hand you're going it's incompetence it's just a bit of a they've just been really bad this has been badly handled on the other hand like there's this is a cover-up this is a cover-up upon cover-up upon cover-up are like you know i just keep thinking are they worried about people taking you know taking the government taking the country to court is it about money is it about protecting business is it about protecting you know i was talking to my daughter about it and she was like what is it like are they, who is the who are the who are the politicians who are the parties in charge when all this went on and what are they just trying to protect themselves and i was like well it was all the parties you know you know you're trying you're trying to extract the reason behind it yeah. because because yeah. it's been, been been handled so badly because it's been maybe it's incompetence maybe it's stupidity it doesn't seem like they're that stupid to me it just stinks of a cover-up and there's it seems like there's a very good reason for a cover-up. I mean, they're talking about protecting people who, who want to keep their information private. I'm sure it's very easy to do that. They don't need to make everything public. We just want to hear the stories of the people that want to hear their stories. And I know before... Exactly. And I know before from payouts that, that happened with the industrial schools and the laundrettes or whatever, they were they they got their money, but they were told that they couldn't tell their stories. Um. Why, why are we afraid? This is a problem for this country. We have traumas that we need to deal with. And the only way of dealing with these traumas is to be is to be uh, vulnerable and honest and all those kind of things and to let people tell their stories. And then we can we need, as a country need to heal because we're all responsible. We're all in this. We're all part of of whatever it was. If it's a cover up, we are now part of it. And I don't want to be part of it. And that's why I think you see the people going, look, this is not good. This stinks. When something stinks, there's a reason it stinks. And it's not good enough. Like, what could, what could the cover-up be? Like, what are, we, what are they worried about? Uh, and I think you've touched on a, on a number of them, of them there. And, you know, my sort of guiding principle on, on most things is transparency is, is really good because it stops the speculation. You know, it... it, it it's required for healing. So I, I read somewhere today, actually, that um, uh, UN Rapporteur said that, you know, access and transparency is needed for healing. You know, so any attempt to try and cover up as there appears to be, and I think there are a number of red flags, certainly in that regard, um, it denies the women, the survivors, the healing that they are owed by the state. And, and the issue is like, this isn't, you know, this isn't hundreds of years ago. Like the investigation period was, the terms of reference was from uh, 22 to 98, to 1998. And, you know, you're talking about some of the, the people who ran some of those ho homes, uh, you know, still alive. You know, it, this, is, this is very much live and current. This is the current state and how it is responding to 
It's responsibility. It's responsibility. This is not history. It's responsibility to, to those people. So in that regard, I think there is um, certainly liability issues. I don't think like if we can find the money that we need to find to deal with COVID, you know, we need to find the money for women and people impacted by neglect and abuse by state institutions. So that that is an argument doesn't hold up, but it does it, it it does have credibility as an argument in terms of why they would try and, and cover it up. A number of the red flags, as, as I've said, the, that the fact that the Attorney General's advice was different to the Data Protection Commissioner and that the information from the Data Commissioner that they were, um, they were essentially breaking the law by doing what they, by sealing the records or seeking to, to, to seal the records, that that information was not made available. I think, now I stand to be corrected on that, but my understanding is that the day of the vote that people weren't aware of that, that that wasn't available until the, the following day, but whether or which the fact that both of those um, um, very senior advisors to the state are at odds in terms of their advice to the government, that is a red flag. Something I've also picked up on in terms of going through the terms of reference, you know, you hear about the, the Commission of Investigation and look, it, it, it's just the um, the curious in me, I'm always interested in, well, who picks them and how do they get picked and who are they? And, you know, they're, they're incredibly educated um, people, very qualified. There's a barrister, a judge and a, and a historian. But when I drilled down down further, they obviously didn't take the, the or collect the 60,000 records on their own. In the terms of reference, they were allowed to, or they, it was their their role to actually select the confidential committees, and it was the confidential committees that took an awful lot of the information and the testimonies that were given. So my natural instinct is to ask, well, how were they picked? What were their backgrounds? What were their qualifications? And again. I can't get information about that. Now, maybe somebody will come back as a result of this podcast and say, here's where the, that information is. But um, I did, I was in, in communication with the, the Adoption Rights Alliance and they also asked questions about the, the confidential committees and, and the persons taking, taking questions. And they didn't seem to get too far with getting answers on, on those either. And again, that's a red flag for me. Why would you hide the people that are taking the, the, the records, because worst case scenario, and I'm not saying this has happened, but worst case scenario, you pick people that you trust to pick and choose the information that's recorded. That's worst case scenario. And I'm not saying that's what, no. what's happened here. But that's but, what you start thinking because, you, of, because of the lack of transparency. You, 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 yes, like, stop. you have it's, to save, put it like this, you have to safeguard against that happening. And you can only do that if you have very clear criteria for the people that you select and their suitability to even talk to people who have been through the sort of traumas that they that they have been been through and remember it's not just um the survivors you know they've talked to people 
or certainly it was part of the terms of reference who would have worked in those institutions and liaised with them and engaged with them and, and all of that. And again, that's the concern about third parties being redacted from information that might be handed over. But I'm hopeful now that that won't happen. And certainly I think when you hear 189,000, I think it is, roar from your constituents um, and from your citizens, they really need to think very long and hard about their next step. They need to listen to their survivors. They need to listen to the requests, the, the very specific requests that they have. I know that they're looking for documents that are 30 years old that would in their original form normally have been handed over to the National Archives. They are asking that that still happens. So don't, because a commission was set up, now throw a veil of secrecy over documents that would have gone to the archive had you never set up a, a commission. And we would be in a situation where somebody like a Catherine Corliss would have been able to actually access more information than what we may or could have ended up with at the end of the, the, the commission investigation. So... A lot of red flags for Lots sure. Lots of it. That's the problem. Is that there's two, and, and and they'd be foolish to believe that this is a section of society, or even the the hundred eighty thousand people who 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 signed the petition, or whatever it is. And I guarantee you, and I've mentioned my daughter a couple of times. I guarantee you, there's there's teenage girls and whatever. Maybe not the lads so much, but there's definitely WhatsApp groups hopping with misinformation, or but at least they're they're definitely talking about it, and oh, they're definitely interested, sure. in it, and they definitely want to know, and they definitely know. As I said, when something stinks, you know, people get the smell and everybody gets the smell and everybody knows there's something wrong here. And some people are louder than others, but it's but it's definitely. And so so I, I won't keep you much longer, Fiona, because I know this is currently short notice. And, and Can I just add in there just on that? Yeah, I think definitely I completely agree with you. You know, when it gets to the stage where people like Maeve O'Rourke and the Clan Project, which is you know, people offering free advice to, to have provided statements to the, the commission. When you get people name calling, you know, and trying to undermine them as opposed to the arguments that they are, that they are making, um, it's disturbing, but it is a part of the cycle, I believe, that means that we are getting cl too close to the truth of it. Uh, and I think we're at a tipping point. And I think if people like yourself and others uh, keep talking about this, they cannot ignore it. They cannot, um, they cannot bury this. I mean, you know, they, they didn't uh, give respectful burials to, to so many hundreds, maybe thousands of, of children, but they want to bury this and uh, that can't be allowed to, to happen. Jeez, if to put as much effort into making sure that yeah. these, these people, <laughs> oh, I don't know, um, it's 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 it would make you angry. So where, so mm. very very briefly, then, what hope do we have, or what are the what are what is the, is there light at the end of the tunnel? Is there something that could happen, or what's I, the next I step? What what should we I, be doing? I I think there is. I think definitely the the commission is huge. I think you're doing what you can do, Keith, which is talking about it, which is airing the. The issues, um, as I said, I think it is a difficult one to explain all the complexities of it, but I think it is important to try and do that, to try and explain to people exactly, 
you know, the pieces of legislation that um, that are causing the, the confusion, whether intended to or not. And I believe part of it is in, certainly intended. I think we need to support and listen to the survivors. That is the, is the big thing and, and, and to their requests. And what they want is, I mean, really what the, the biggest issue with this bill is what it didn't do. And, uh, and that's the fact that it didn't clarify that GDPR applies to the to the archive of, of the Commission of Investigation now and when the, the minister receives it. So uh, the survivors and campaigners want that to be clarified. That shouldn't be that shouldn't be an issue. Um, they want to release to National Archives, as I said, any departmental records over 30 years that would ordinarily have been required to be deposited in the, the National Archive. Now, the minister is saying, well, look, at that's up to each department. But again, you know, I think I, um, Fergus Finlay, I think, was, was the person who said that Roderick O'Gorman has been caught by system capture. So it's that whole idea of this has been the way it's always been, you know, and it's really, uh, and I don't want to be personal or anything, but system ca capture is easier if, the less critical thought that you have. And I think all of us, each of us, have to stop accepting things the way they are and saying, oh, well, there's a piece of legislation that says that or whatever. Even if the legislation supported the ceiling of the bill, which I don't believe that it does, then change it. Don't allow that to be an argument for, for ceiling. Um, the other thing that, they, that they've, they've asked for is to require publication of comprehensive finding aids to the Commission um, archives so that further consultation can happen regarding the need to unseal other elements of the archive. And they, and they reference their administrative records, which may relate to third party payments, um, that type of thing. So they're saying we don't know yet exactly what our response is going to be but the amount of information that is available to us and unsealed may prove to be really really important in the future and the only way we can know that is if all parts of it are are unsealed and I think they are all I think it is the very very least that we owe those those women the the, the women that uh, were sent into those um, mother and baby homes for the crime of of being pregnant um, and were abused and babies malnourished and, you know, tested for vaccines and bodies sent for anatomical education. I mean, that is what this is about. That we have to keep remembering. So legislation and bills and controversies and all that aside, they are the people at the core of this and they are the people that we need to give a voice to and we need to listen to um, and keep doing it and, and keep doing that and keep signing the, the, the petition until we're absolutely assured that they will have access, not only that they'll have access to their information, but that their stories, for those that want their stories to be told, and as I said, there are plenty, that their stories can and will be told so that it can never happen again. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And it, it, I mean, it's funny, it's interesting that uh, they're so careful in mentioning when they talk about COVID at the moment when they're on the news and they always mention the fact that there's, we're talking about lives here and people are dying. And 
it's it, it, the language of this is is very much about legislation and laws and and yeah. commissions and it's it's not it's that's not the case this is about people yeah. and 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 yeah. ba- babies and lost children and and lost information about children and lost information about mothers and these this is all about people you know and it's very it's sometimes that can i mean obviously not lost to you but you know they forget about that as well and uh, i suppose part of keeping the whole thing or, or succeeding covering it up is not to allow it to be people's stories yeah and you know they're trying to keep it as sterile as possible but but this is about this is about lives and babies and and mothers and and, and fathers and and and, uh, and, grandparents and i think it was and the whole country you know and and about people you mightn't some of us mightn't even know or be aware of yeah. that it is about in our in our in our families you know and i think um i think it was breed smith td that said uh, you know articulated that this is one of the worst crimes of the 20th century that's that's the scale of it and it's happened it's happened in ireland and yeah. when i say you know you have to ensure that we bring transparency to it and, and that we have to ensure that the, the files are open and people's stories are told so it can't happen again. I don't mean that exactly the same story that we, that we need to prevent that from happening again, but we need to prevent, we need to start a new process by which, as I said, we start listening to survivors and that system capture can't happen, that just because the way it's always been done around here is used and is continued uh, as an excuse to mainly impact detrimentally the rights of women in in Ireland going forward so I suppose in many ways I'm I'm angry like at the back of my head like I have one son and two daughters and the more you hear about this not just about what has happened between 22 and 98 but of our response to it now that really really worries me for my own kids and, and into the future and for my own daughters mm. and into and and into the the future this isn't something we can disconnect from and say so so the reaction to it as you said the cover-up is very relevant to how we will deal with anything similar in the in the future you know and like <laughs> You know, we talk a lot about, you know, you hear people saying, you know, such and such didn't die for this. And we we fought for the right to run our own country and decide on our own affairs and to make our own laws and to be an independent state. And did we do it to have to, to spend to spend the bulk of a century uh, creating such trauma for everybody because the people in authority in this country we're doing terrible things to the people of this country and we need to we need now to deal with that because we're all we've all been affected and it's time to it's time to move on it's time to look at it and and deal with it and i would absolutely agree with you and and i think you know key to that is that we have lived in a very patriarchal society that has uh, had been under um too much of a um, influence of the of the church and i'm not i'm not anti-church but i am anti the church reaching into areas of women's lives that it has nothing got to got to do with and it was and continues to be to a degree a patriarchal society you know i 
and I'm not anti-men. I am, and I'm not ashamed to call myself a, a feminist. A feminist to me, uh, I more often call myself an egalitarian. You know, I think everybody should have the the same rights. And this is where it comes to, okay, what can we do? How how do we improve these sort of things? This is where diversity is hugely important. If the doll that you have, if your politicians aren't reflective of the people in the society that they make laws for, um, that does not make for, for good law, as we have seen in the, in the past. And uh, I know I'm going off a little bit on a tangent, but I think, you know, the, the, it has been proven that diversity is really important, but it has also been proven because there is an argument about the women who have voted for and in favor of this bill. The evidence and research shows that women who go into male dominated environments, um, unless there's a certain tipping point, which they have at about 30%, that actually in almost in order to survive, that women tend to take on in those male dominated environments, that women tend to take on the attributes of the men with whom they, they work. And I think that might give a little bit of insight, not justification, but insight into how important it is to have more women, more people from different backgrounds, more people from different ethnic backgrounds, different races reflected in our, our doll. And that is not unconnected to the pattern of treatment of women that has happened in Ireland over, the, over decades. It is not un, unrelated, you know, so... Um, yeah, more diversity. That's what we need going forward. Well, we, we, we lived in a country where the women and the children were second class citizens. If, you know, if they were lucky enough to be second class citizens, they'd have, some of them would have taken second class citizenship. Absolutely. Um, thanks very much for explaining it. And uh, thanks for your time and uh, keep up. The thanks so much for, for having me on, you know, and as I said, I'm open to any correction on any of on any of that. You know, I really am. I, I want to learn more about this myself, you know, because I think it's an interesting example of how of spin, you know, of how something so important can be whipped up for um, by politicians, really you know, to, to, to try and defend themselves while ignoring the people that the commission and the investigation was set up to, to protect, protect and yeah. uh, support in the, in the first place, you know. So, so thanks, Keith, for that. Fiona, I let you go. Okay, there you go. Thank you very much to Fiona McLaughlin-Healy. And uh, as always, she's, uh, she's very available and very helpful to her constituents, her uh, the people in, in the in Kildare when they call on her to be on their podcast and uh, she has her own podcast as well which you can um, which you can find just look for Fiona McLaughlin Healy and it will come up uh, which I've I've appeared on and uh, I'm a big admirer of her and her work and I think and I hope that that will give you a better understanding of what's happened in the last few days in the doll uh, what the what that vote meant and hopefully um i'm not telling you what to do with that information but hopefully if there are petitions to be signed or is there there is action to be taken you will feel more empowered to get involved and you know know what you're talking about and it's it's kind of hard like i find it hard to get be angry about something and you're not quite sure exactly 
what the information is. You know it's wrong. You know it stinks. And but you're just like, I wish I knew more about it. So it was brilliant. Brilliant for me to talk to Fiona about it. And I think she explained it very well and put it as plainly uh, as possible. It's a very intricate situation. It's, it needs untangling. It needs looking at. And um, I think ultimately, as Fiona says, let's not just be victim of, I don't know how she put it, but let's not just do that thing of like, like that thing that, well, that's what, that's what the law says and that's what you have to do. And that's what, as she says, if, well, if the, if the law is wrong, you know, don't just accept it. You know, we need to work to change it. And especially those in power, um, don't just say, well, there's nothing I can do. That's just what it is. It is what it is. And always question it. And, and if it, if it stinks and if it seems wrong, then, you know, we need to look into it further. Um, and I suppose, in fairness to her, we and I have to agree with her, it seems that some of the politicians involved who voted to seal the information um, may not have been fully aware of what they were doing. So, you know, we will give them that. Um, anyway, that's it. My email, as always, is keithwalsh.walsh at gmail.com or keithwalshpod at gmail.com. Um, or you can... Uh, you can direct message me on Instagram or Twitter and I'd love to hear from you and if you have any questions and as Fiona says if you have any questions or thoughts I'm happy to air them in a future podcast Um, so do feel free to get in touch ultimately let's not forget that this is not about legislation it's not about a bill it's not about the doll it's not about the shannon it's about people and it's about the dreadful things that happened to mothers and babies um, and possibly, as Fiona said, people that you don't know, that you know, that you don't know, um, hap- that this happened to. Um, it's people behind all this talk and all this voting and all this legislation. It's people and people who've lost children and have no way of properly dealing with their grief. And let's not make their grief any worse. And let's try and stand up for them. Um and help them have their voice heard. That's it for me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Take care. Uh, Talk soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.